Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So the uh, title of this talk is, uh, or this Dharmet, is um, The Problem with Being a Good Meditator. Um, as, uh, as many of you know, if you, if you come here regularly, I... Um, lead the month-long, uh, February month-long at Spirit Rock um, each year and uh, really enjoyed the month-long retreat um, this past year um, that ended the beginning of, uh, the end of February. Um, and the, the month-long is about mm, Fifty-five or so people who do who are there for one month, and about another um, thirty or so, twenty-five or thirty, who are there um, for two months. They stay a second month uh, when another teaching crew comes in, uh, and then another fifty-five or sixty or so come for the um, uh, for that second month. And I uh, just happened to be there last week. I was teaching this three-day non-residential um, uh, retreat uh, with Bob Doppelt, which was really uh, a pleasure, uh, Dharma and climate change and things like that. But I happened to be there when the, um, when the two-month retreat just was ending and just when uh, silence was broken, so I got to... Um, see all the people who are ending the retreat, and uh, in particular, I was interested in uh, checking in with the um, the people that I, I had worked with and supported from uh, that first month. And uh, it's really uh, not only is it uh, an an honor to uh, to be in that position of of helping support people and guide people, but it's so inspiring and just seeing how the practice works. Uh, And uh, it does work. All of the people have glow on their face. Sometimes it's called the Vipassana facelift. You know, they they look about 10 years younger, uh, whatever their age is, and just um, glowing and so open and just no armoring and um, really radiant. Uh, as, is, as sometimes can happen, um, the reentry after you're so open um, is a delicate process. And we uh, talk about that at the end of the retreat. Uh, often I'll, I'll give the analogy. When I end a retreat, uh, it's like I'm a, a newborn baby. There's all the armoring is down, and uh, 
there are t- many moments where you're just saying, wow, look at the world. Gee, it's so brilliant and vivid and bright and alive. And then it's, whoa, this is way too much. This is a lot of stimulation. And I need to kind of ground myself and regroup. And this is a natural part of the process, particularly if you you understand that you're not doing anything wrong. Uh, it just takes a while to go from the slow lane to the faster lane. And there are, um, you learn um, to be more and more um, understanding with the process as you go through uh, energy changes and sometimes uh, uh, seeing things more than you normally would and seeing places inside that, oh, I'm, I still have my personality. I remember the first time I did a long retreat and I uh, did a, a th- my first three-month retreat, which they, do, uh, they hold every year at uh, Insight Meditation Society. And I, st- I opened um, my mouth for during the integration part. It's sometimes called Integration Week. And I opened up my mouth, and there was you know, judgment, paranoia, insecurity, and, uh, and I went running to my teacher saying, it didn't work. Um, and he reminded me, it's not about getting rid of anything, it's about really seeing it all and uh, not taking it personally and learning to love every part of ourselves. So you go through a little bit of bumpy uh, waters and you just give yourself enough space to, uh, to go through that and then you kind of come back and you come back from with a deeper connection to a place of home than you had when you started. You know, I don't want to frighten people off and say, well, I don't know if I'm ready for one of those things. It's definitely worth it. And like anything, it, there's a, an adjustment period for... Um, for a little while afterwards. Anyway, I was um, uh, checking in one of the uh, one of the people on this retreat um, uh, said uh, that they wanted to check in with me because it's been a little um, you know, one of those uh, uh, periods of adjustment, and um, and she. Um, she had a, a really f- a fabulous retreat when I was working with her and speaking to the, one of the teachers who worked with her for the, the second month. Um, fabulous in the, in the sense that she really got to a place of equanimity and, uh, and okayness with everything, and she wasn't fighting the moment at all. And, um, it was, and she's got um, a strong practice and one of her friends who was on the retreat who um, also had a very wonderful, extraordinary uh, experience. And theirs had a different flavor than hers. Uh, theirs, uh, they experienced some, um, some states of concentration, strong concentration, which can happen from time to time, where you're kind of in an altered space, and it's very 
um, bells and whistles and things like that. And as much as she you know, cares about her, her friend, when she heard that, she said for, for a while, um, it was as much as she was happy for her friend, she was she got into this spinning in her head well i didn't have that and um she from this really great place she um started the comparing mind started to to play and she was thinking oh god what did i miss out on it and Gee, I wish I. Why didn't I? You know, could have done this, or I didn't have that, and and so she wanted to check in with me, and we had a, a really wonderful talk. Um, she understood um, that not only do you get just the right retreat for you, but she she was missing the fact that. Bells and whistles are not necessarily where it's at. As wonderful as they are, you can um, get caught in thinking, oh, that's the real practice. So as we were, we were talking, it made me uh, remember um, a couple of passages from, from the teachings a couple of different um, pointers to this. And I wanted to read to you um, from one discourse uh, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Uh, This is um, an excerpt that's put in uh, this wonderful book. If you ever see the book called The Island by Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro, an anthology of the Buddhist teachings on Nibbana, it's a free book, which makes it harder to to um, to uh, get a hold of. But I think the whole thing is probably online for free. Anyway, this is um, from the Anguttara Nikaya, a collection of the, the Buddha's discourses, and this is the the story. Then Venerable Anuruddha, this is one of the most famous um, disciples of the Buddha, went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying. Sariputta is the, one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha. And Anuruddha it was a, a, a master of um, psychic um, powers and, um, and able to... Uh, see far realms and uh, all kinds of psychic powers. Um, That was one of the things he was known for. So he went to Venerable Sariputta, and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he said to Venerable Sariputta, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, what most humans can have, I see the thousandfold cosmos. He's having a pretty good retreat. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. 
My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. These are the various of the seven factors of enlightenment. And yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. That's another way of saying, and yet I know I'm not enlightened. I am getting all the bells and whistles here you could hope for, but I'm not enlightened. What's, what's the problem? And Sariputta answers, My friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. That is related to your conceit. What in, uh, in the teachings, one of the fetters or defilements is called mana, or the conceit of I am, of I, look at me. Okay. Either look at me, aren't I wonderful, or look at me, uh, I'm not as good as you. It's just, or look at me, I'm separate from you. They're all the same in, in that category of conceit. But this is particularly around conceit. Hey, look at me, I'm pretty cool here. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness, that is related to your restlessness. And restlessness in this, in this sense is uh, there is the, the conceit gives rise to, um, uh, well, things are, things are good, but they're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And then he says, um, when the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element, which is another way of saying, let go of all your accomplishment and tune into the reality that is beyond look at me. The deathless element is another way of saying towards nibbana or nirvana. So after that, Venerable Anuruddha, abandoning those three qualities, not attending to those three qualities of anxiety, restlessness, and conceit, um, directed his mind to the deathless element, dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. He in no long time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life for which people rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There is no more coming into any state of being 
And thus, Venerable Anuruddha became another one of the Arhants, fully enlightened beings. Like most of these stories, um, he got it. He just needed to hear the right, the right words. This is um, something that is a little bit of a trap for, um, can be a big trap for practitioners. If you happen to fall into a really delicious state, it can be a problem. Not that the state itself is a problem, but in thinking, that's it. I got it. Any state is going to be a temporary experience. And particularly if you take ownership of that state, look at me. This is sometimes uh, referred to in Mahayana teachings as the stink of enlightenment. It looks really good, but this is not a truly liberated mind and heart. In, in Theravadan teachings, there is a um, um, different stages of, of, the, of the process, what's called the progress of insight. Uh, and at one stage, it gets really delicious, bells and whistles, where just like Anuruddha, the different factors of enlightenment, there are seven factors of enlightenment, are come on really strong. There's my, strong mindfulness, strong investigation, strong energy, strong joy or bliss, strong calm, concentration, and equanimity. And you see a lot but this can easily turn into what is called the corruptions of insight. They're called the corruptions of insight at this particular stage because they feel so good that you can either think you're enlightened or you get really attached to them and say, this is where it's at. I want more of this. So it's corruption because even though those are beautiful qualities of the mind and the heart, there is a grasping in the mind either for the experience or a grasping at the ownership of them. Look at me. Anybody ever have a, a really sweet experience in meditation saying, hey, I think I kind of got this now. Is that, can anybody relate to that? You know, it depends. You have to have had a good experience. So uh, if you didn't, then you just kind of, oh, they sound good. Gee, I wish I could have. Notice if your mind is saying, oh, I wish I could have one of those. I'll just share uh, a couple of more points, and then we can we can uh, look at this. Um, first time I did a my a, a retreat, my own um, intensive practice retreat. This is in 
1974, I had this one meditation period where it didn't, it was the first time I ever had this experience where I was so enjoying myself that it didn't matter if the bell never rang. You know, it was like, there was a part of me saying, oh gosh, I hope this bell doesn't ring. It's so cool. It was like, I was breathing in and the universe was breathing out and I was breathing out and we were just in harmony. And it was really cool. And over the course of the next couple of days, every time I sat, it was, wow, maybe it'll happen again. And I had... Every kind of meditative experience except that. Mostly, I got confused, I was grasping, I, got, I crashed, I was spun out, and, and then I, I went into an interview. We have interviews every few days on a retreat, and I went to my teacher, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who... Uh, was there, and I said, you know, I had it a couple of days ago, and I lost it. Uh, could you tell me how, to, how I get back there? And he told me this story that I was so grateful that, happened, that it happened on my first retreat about his own practice, where he was practicing in India. He practiced for about seven years better part of seven years straight. Um, and he got to this place in his practice where every time he sat, his body was just so clear and um, brilliant and his mind was light, was light. And it went on for some time. He was just grooving, feeling really good. And then he went home for, um, he was visiting his family at home, and he got out of practice. He knew he was going to go back to India in another month or so, and he, he didn't practice much uh, and just um, you know, got into being at home and hanging out. And then he went back to India, and he was telling me this. He said, and I remembered really clearly how things were, and he said, I sat down, hoping to get back to where I was. And then he, he said, I spent nearly two years trying to recreate that experience. He said, I sat down and my body was like twisted steel. Those are the words that he used. And my mind was like mud. And I spent two years trying to recreate that experience. And then he looked at me and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. I said, thank you very much, Joseph. Thank you. And was reminded, even though his teachers, he was practicing with his teachers, and they said, just... Be with things as they are. And yet there was this compulsion. Oh, maybe now. And then after 
at some point he let go of trying to recreate that experience and ah, his practice took off in a whole other direction, in a whole other way. So that was was one story that impressed upon me. And then another another personal experience where I had, I saw, I saw a glimpse of not taking ownership of the experience. I I fell in. I might have shared this in uh, before here. I was in one of these longer retreats, and I was in a really um, you know, wonderful space where I was just uh, things were going well. I was sitting for long stretches at a time, and my body was was clear, and my mind was was pretty uh, was pretty clear, and. Um, and on one of these longer sitting sessions, somebody came into the hall who I had tremendous respect for as far as their practice. Uh, and they sat down, and I, I, would, I would sometimes sit with my eyes open just to let in the light. And they sat down, and after about 10 minutes, they were doing a classic nods. This is called the nods. You kind of go like this. And it was mystifying to me. Here was this this yogi who I had great respect for. She sits down and she's just nodding off after 10 minutes and I'm sitting there for hours and I'm I've got, I don't know how it happened, but there was energy and I was clear. And I know very well what it's like to be in the nods. I've spent many hours in that mode, probably weeks if you put them all together. And it occurred to me the next day that could be me. And I had no idea how I somehow ended up in the state that I was in. But all of a sudden, realizing how that could be me tomorrow, something happened in my mind in the room, and each person meditating was their own field of energy where here was sleepiness, here was energy and clarity, here might have been loving kindness, here might have been um, um, calm, here might have been um, um, compassion or joy. That was just in that moment where the configurations were. But when I saw it, it was just these energies that were visiting each of these beings. In a moment, it was like the whole room kind of spun around and realizing that we could all be switching places in the next hour, let alone day. And the thought of me doing it made no sense at all. 
I had no idea how that happened. But there I was, and to take credit for it was completely missing the point. And that was much more impactful and profound than the delicious state that I was in. Just seeing, I can't take ownership of this. All I could do is say, amazing grace. Oh, this is, what a gift this is right now. And to take any kind of credit would be truly getting into that stink of practice. And as we were, I was sharing with my friend who had sat at the retreat and just seeing the real freedom is letting go of you thinking you're controlling the show. The real freedom is just opening up to whatever life is giving you right now and learning to be with that. If it's calm, oh, this is calm, Buddha. If it's meltdown, oh, this is meltdown, Buddha. If it's bliss, oh, this is bliss, Buddha. If it's boredom or sleepiness, this is boredom or boring Buddha or sleepy Buddha, meaning it's just what has moved through us. So I offer that to you to really see that you don't have to make anything happen in this practice. And in fact, the more you try to make something happen, the more you're getting caught in the illusion that I can control my experience. And that I is the problem. When there's no I, when it's just, this is how life is moving through me at this moment, and there's uh, an awareness that doesn't take it personally, That's the freedom. Isn't that freeing? Nothing that you need to manipulate, nothing that you need to create or make happen, nothing that you need to get rid of, nothing that you need to embellish. It's all passing anyway. It's all going to come and go and come and go. So your job is to just be here for the changing scenes and not take credit or blame, but just be here with things as they are. That's the real freedom. So, I'll stop here, and uh, at this point, if you either have anything that you want to bring up from that, or about practice in general, I'd, I'd really like to 
hear what's going on with your practice, either both uh, on the cushion or off the cushion, uh, we can take some time. And uh, would you be willing, Jackie? And when you when you speak, speak like this, not like this, like this. What's up for you? Yeah. Tom. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about the length. You, you mentioned that you sat for hours. Uh, and somehow I, I get this impression that 45 minutes is sort of a, an optimum time, um, but I hear about sitting a lot, lot longer, and you just mentioned it, it seemed like. Is there any guidance at all about that, or does it matter? You know, or? it's uh, no sitting, sitting for forty-five minutes. Sitting, for, my pact with myself is that um, I'll get into the posture every day. So if it's a choice between five minutes or none at all, do the five minutes. The getting in the posture is the main thing. Sitting for you know, if you can sit for a half an hour or forty-five minutes. Uh, at a time, that's great. The longer kind of practice, it's not something that you can make happen. You know, if you're if you're doing it like a samurai, I'm going to sit here and just not move for the next three hours. You know, uh, it, it, then it's just your ego. It's more like when that happens, you're kind of there for the ride. And um, you can't make it happen. So what I, when somebody is on retreat, sometimes they get into that kind of a flow. And, then I, and I'll say, sit until there's a reason to get up. And walk. And you can do the same thing with walking practice. You know, walk as long as you're cruising and, and really there. Keep on walking. It's good if you've done a long sit to do some walking so that you're grounded but um, you know, it's po- sometimes you can sit for many hours. Just kind of happens, and again, it's like you're just there for the ride. I don't know how that happened, but there it is. It's like holy cow, and that actually shows you just how selfless the thing is because you didn't make it happen. Is just kind of happening all on its own. That that that's the neat. That that's it's just the the little tweak that makes all the difference. In in the moment, there's hey, look at this. You've just taken credit for something that's completely been out of your control. But as soon as you 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 switch it to wow, isn't this amazing? You know, then there's that a, a, a true humility that's not taking credit for it. Sometimes it happens, you know. You can't make it. You can't force it, though. Yeah. Um, my question is a little bit different, and that I don't know much about Buddhism. I can just tell you that I'm in search, and through my search, Buddhism has continued to re- can- Buddhism has continued to resurface itself. In the last month, everywhere I've gone, it's kind of resurfaced. Uh-huh. I think so. My question, more or less, is because I'm trying to get understanding, is Buddhism the meditation or is it just the way of life? It's, it's both. The ism actually, you know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Uh, the Buddha 
was this man who lived 25, 2600 years ago who said it's possible to free the mind of, of hatred and grasping and wanting. It's possible to experience a deep peace inside. And he had some guidelines for doing that. But he said, this is all something for you to check out for yourself. Don't take, and one of the, the thing that hooked me was he said, don't take my word for it. Don't believe anybody. You just see for yourself what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. And he did say that the cornerstone of training the mind and the heart is to learn to be present for your experience uh, without wanting, without the mind grasping onto the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant, to really see clearly this is that the mindfulness meditation, which is now you know, used in Kaiser and in schools and in business and all. And you know, mindfulness has become, and there's lots of research done on it. He said, if you train the mind and the heart to learn how to pay attention, then you will see what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. And there is a prescription that he gave for doing that, which includes... Um, not harming others or yourself through your speech, through your actions, through your livelihood. Um, it includes training the mind and the heart in the meditation, developing mindfulness and concentration. And it also includes understanding some basic principles of reality that um, everything is changing, that there is uh, the law of cause and effect, that things aren't happening random, that you can train the mind and the heart. So he laid out a prescription that he said, just check out, check this out. And at the heart of his of that prescription is learning to train the, the, the mind and the heart to be very present. So it's both, um, it's a philosophy, it's a way of life of interacting with, with the world around you and learning to make friends with yourself inside. And it's also, uh, it includes uh, very effective practices. It's not just conceptual. There are practices that, that anyone can learn to train the mind and the heart. That do it. Hi. Um, so I'm fairly new in meditation, um, and I'm curious. Your uh, what I find is that what my idea of what it is to meditate, sort of informed by various books and uh, uh, teachings that I've experienced, I find myself focusing on my back and my posture and little moving pains a lot. And so what what I experience as meditation is a lot of 
subtle adjusting of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, sometimes this question of like, should I move to be more comfortable mm-hmm. or should I focus on experiencing the discomfort? Um, and then, and then there's this place of ambivalence of like, now I'm just sitting here thinking about whether to move my leg. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, mm-hmm. um, cause I was glancing up at you and I'm like, is he moving? Is he shifting around? <laughs> and so I just, I, there's always this little shifting of like, if I move an inch back, does that make my spine feel better if I move an inch mm-hmm. forward? And I find that that takes, that, that's kind of where my attention goes mm. when I'm doing what I think of as meditating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. It's great that you're tracking all of that. Yeah. That's the, you know, don't, don't miss out on the fact that you're seeing what's going on inside. Should I move? Shouldn't I move? What's the right way? Oh, now I'm thinking about it. And, um, gee, that's confusing. Now I'm noticing that I'm thinking about it. And, uh, well, um, first of all, just appreciate that you're, you're seeing all of that. Okay. And if you can keep your sense of humor with the whole thing, it, it helps a lot. Uh, as far as um, when, you're, when you're sitting, are you, are you, you're sitting cross-legged, I guess, on, on the floor. Is that? What's that? Uh, you're doing kneeling. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So one thing you might do is f- um, find a posture that you can be most comfortable and still. And there's nothing holy about sitting on the floor. Uh, There's something, uh, one, if you can or get used to it, there's something about keeping your spine straight that brings some some alertness. Um, But sooner or later, you're going to probably hear your body saying, hey, pay attention to me. And you might find comfort in knowing even the Buddha had backaches. And it's in the, in the discourses he would tell Sariputta to give the discourse while he rested his back. It's nothing to be, you know, you're not doing it wrong. You have a body. And so find a posture you can be reasonably straight and reasonably still, but not stiff. You want to be both a combination of upright and alert and at the same time relaxed. So if there's any places of tension or holding, you allow them to soften. And then as far as when there's a discomfort, there's no right or wrong, but you might um, here's a few ways to relate to it. First of all, when you see there's a discomfort, you probably notice your mind isn't wandering off someplace. You might wish it were someplace else, but there you are on your shoulder or your back or whatever. So in one way, it's an ally that can keep you here. But at some point, it's not to be a a samurai and just see how tough you can be. So one way first to use the discomfort, and this is all done in a spirit of exploration and experimenting, is um, let the rest of your body be quite 
open and soft because sometimes when there's a, a tension, we can tense up in response. Uh-oh, this is getting tight here. So you want to have the rest of your body quite soft. Maybe take a few deeper breaths so that there's some, um, so any kind of tension can be um, moved through with the breath. And then for just a little chunk of time, you might um, imagine like you're Sherlock Holmes with a magnifying glass. Just checking out the area. Okay, instead of, oh, here's pain. I don't know if I can handle it. What's going on here? Oh, there's... um, there's tightness, there's sensation, there's pressure, there's burning or whatever. And I would make a little contract with myself, okay, for the next minute or half a minute, let's just check it out. Just check out the whole landscape. Because then you're there with it and interested in it. And then at the end of that half a minute or a minute, you might come back to take a break and stay, come back to the breath or notice your whole body sitting here. I would suggest doing that a couple of times, two or three times, just so you get a little bit of practice in being with an unpleasant sensation. Or you can notice the various shifts and just just notice with interest, oh, look at the body doing its thing. But experiment with stillness At some point, if it gets to be a struggle, then you don't get any extra credit for being there with the struggle. Then just say, okay, time to move. And moving, moving. And doing that as an awareness practice as well, so that you are seeing the shift. And... Sometimes you'll stay with it because it's interesting or you're just feeling a sense of courage. And sometimes the most skillful thing will be to uh, compassionately move. So there's no one right or wrong, just seeing, is this supporting me being here in a very um, interested and balanced way? What else? Anything else? Go ahead. So um, what about uh, meditating lying down? What's that? Lying down. Lying down, yeah. Sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Lying down, you know, the Buddha said, be in uh, all four postures. Uh, You can be mindful standing, sitting, walking, lying down. Uh, So when you are lying down, it's a very good thing to be mindful. If you need to lie down because your body is, uh, is, is struggling in the sitting up posture, then it's fine to lie down. There are some things to keep in mind. Keep your eyes open. You might look at a point on the ceiling. 
or you might have your hands up so you're a little bit more uh, alert and present. The, the problem with lying down, you can guess. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't have to be a problem if, you're, if it's late at night and you want to go to sleep. Then you might, instead of trying to get to sleep, try to stay mindful in a lying down position. <laughs> You'll be out probably pretty soon, so you can use it to your advantage. Uh, but you just, if you need to take your, care of your body that way, then lying down is, is fine. Yeah. <clears throat> that is the, the challenge. Is there one last one and then we'll go. So um, this is more of an invitation for comment. Uh-huh. Speak up just a um, bit. Sorry, this is more of an invitation for comment rather okay. than question. Okay. And um, also just to know that I've been practicing for almost 20 years now mm-hmm. and uh, some long retreats, many wrong retreats. Mm-hmm. So what's happening right now, I'm undergoing a remodel in the house, so I'm really, really, really busy. And um, with the political environment, also I'm busy trying to do what I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but from time to time, a thought occurs to me. There are a lot of choices when it comes to remodel this, that, you know, this, that, this, that. Should I do this? Should I do that? Um, from time to time, though, a thought is occurring to me, and the thought is, um, but this is not cessation, this is not peace. This is not This what? is not cessation, this is not peace. This is not sensation? Cessation. Cessation. This uh. is not cessation, this uh. is not peace. Yeah. Um, I have heard plenty of talks from the Burmese teachers, so this is not, I mean, I'm aware of the word cessation and what it means. Um, And it's such a window to such a different world. I'm having a very hard... It's like I'm standing in the border line, borderland, and I don't know how to reconcile the two impulses. And I have to just acknowledge it and then turn and do something completely different immediately. And there is a real pull. But I don't know what to do with it. I'm, I'm, let me make sure I understand. So, so, so it's it's as if I'm being called from time to time. I'm being called to another land. To another land. What's uh, of of wanting to be at peace and and, and not not doing anything but just peace. And it's not possible because I'm in the I'm in the world and it's very busy. And I don't I haven't even gone on a retreat for a year. And I don't think maybe another six eight months. But there's something pulling, and it's worth nurturing, and I don't know how to nurture it in the business of it all. Mm. And do you sit regularly? Yes, uh, about an hour every night. And does that help you nurture it? No. <laughs> I mean, um, it just helps my body and mind stay calm. Um, 
Maybe just be aware of it and just come back. Um, I just mean, notice the wanting mind adds on to the suffering. Mm. That's how it works. Mm. That's kind of what I was trying to point out, that uh, it doesn't matter if it's wanting a new car or wanting deep meditation, meditative peace. It's still the wanting mind. So you. you need to take a look and see how that wanting is adding more suffering onto what's here. Wonderful. And, Thank you very much. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, welcome. And, uh, and be kind and patient with yourself because the real peace is not dependent on the absence of stimulation. It's dependent on being meeting things as they are in a wise relationship. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's uh let's close with a loving kindness and um let's hold those in our hearts and hold yourself in your heart and share your goodwill with all beings everywhere. May all come to the end of suffering. May all see things as they are. May all know the highest happiness. And may our coming here together tonight be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Have a great week. Have a great couple of weeks. See ya. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.